Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. Isaac was sick and then Joseph brought to him his two sons. There's Ephraim and there's Manasseh. Um, and so that his father can bless, him, bless them before he dies, okay? And so Isaac responds and he tells Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. Yani, God, expect, God exceeded his expectation and granted him more than he could ever imagine, all right? And so Isaac blessed Joseph and then he laid his right hand on Ephraim, who was the younger, and then the left hand on Manasseh, who's actually the firstborn. And when Joseph tried to swap his dad's arms around, um, Isaac responded, I know, I know, Manasseh shall become a great people, um, but his younger brother shall be greater than he. So that was just last week's, um, sort of the last chapter. So I was allocated chapters 49 and 50, which is the last two chapters of the book of Genesis. Um, and to be honest, um, when I first opt opened chapter 49 a few weeks ago, I read the title, um, and it was Jacob's Last Words to His Sons. So I'm like, okay, um, it's going to be an emotional chapter, lots of tears. Let's grab the tissue box, um, because I'll probably need them. And then I continued reading, and then I'm like, ah, okay, it's Jacob giving his final blessings to each of his sons. This is going to be a, a touching chapter. I did indeed use the tissue box that night um, in a way that exceeded my own expectation, to my shame, I needed those tissues not because it was an emotional chapter, but because I had no idea what was going on in the chapter. Um, I initially had imagined Jacob's last words to his sons to be like, Rabbana ma'ak ya habibi, wa yikhallikum labad, wa habza ala baad, wa tithkhan ulsh ma'abad. But that wasn't the case at all. It was more like, cursed be their anger, and Marf Shemin binding his donkey to the vine and washing his garments in blood, and a deer let loose, and who else is someone else is a ravenous wolf, and it just made no sense. Um, I was so confused, but when I started reading the commentaries um, from the fathers, I realized that this chapter is truly a gem, okay? And it's, it's very much underappreciated. It's full of prophecies that I never knew about, um, about the Lord Christ. And some of these things that Jacob says is really mind-blowing. So um, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be able to actually um, to study this chapter, these chapters. So we'll start off with chapter 49, verses 1 and 2. Do we have anyone who's happy to volunteer to read? There's a lot of reading today. Yeah, thank you. 1 and 2, please. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, on God, I'm in. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So basically, Isaac knew that he was nearing his death, and he saw his sons as tribes, okay, um, from which the people of God and eventually the Messiah would come. And so he blessed his sons basically through the spirit of prophecy. So he was um, basically prophesying by each of his sons and was talking about what would become of each of his sons. 
So we'll start off with Reuben. Um, can we continue with verse 3 to 4? Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed and you, and you defiled it. He went up, on the up to, to my couch. Okay, so Jacob basically started with Reuben, his firstborn from Leah, okay? Um, hence why he calls him my strength and my might. He was the firstborn. Um, and he's also the one with the birthright. So traditionally, the firstborn son used to get double the, the blessing or double the portion of the inheritance compared to all the other sons, okay? And that was called the birthright. Um, but Reuben actually lost his birthright when he defiled his father's bed by sleeping with his concubine. We can read about that story in First Chronicles chapter 5, okay? Instead, his birthright, or the birthright, was taken away from Reuben and given to Joseph, okay? So one of his much younger brothers. Um, and so now, whenever the genealogy is considered, even though Reuben was technically the firstborn and the one who should have the birthright, um, we consider Joseph to be the firstborn, as, um, and Reuben had lost his birthright. Now, Reuben's forsaking of his birthright through sin is similar to many of the conversations that Christ actually had um, with the Pharisees that we find in the New Testament. So Christ tells the Pharisees, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Okay, Matthew chapter 3. Um, so the Pharisees at the time thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, they can never be rejected by God, okay? And they were always his chosen people, that they were set, they were good. Um, and they had this really strong sense of self-confidence and pride because they were the sons of, of Abraham, okay? And so God, Christ, sorry, was basically telling them, don't be so comfortable um, because you were of the biological bloodline of Abraham. For he says, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from stones, okay? That is, what you consider to be unchangeable, that is, like the bloodline, um, God is able to change, and, and, and he's saying that anyone, including Gentiles, who accepts the Lord as their saviour, is a child of Abraham, and children through baptism, okay? So going again back to Reuben, um, like, because of the law, Reuben is the firstborn, and according to the law, he should be the one that receives the birthright. But because of his sin, Jacob takes the birthright away from him and gives it to Joseph. Okay? And so Reuben here represents the Jews. Okay? And Joseph represents us, the Christians. Okay? The Jews at the time were considered to be the firstborn because they were the first to know God. Okay? They were the firstborn because of their knowledge of God. Okay? And they, they were filled with this great sense of pride because they were God's people. Um, he's, he's chosen. And they believe that because they were chosen by God and because Abraham was their father, they were set, they were good. But actually, because of their unbelief, because, of, because they rejected Christ as their saviour, this birthright was taken away from them and given to the church, to anyone who believes, that, like, believes in the Lord Christ. Okay? So I guess one thing for us to learn about Reuben, um, from Reuben is that we don't deserve anything. Okay? We're not entitled to anything but actually punishment for our sins, okay? Being the firstborn, maybe Reuben felt entitled um, to the birthright, and hence he lost that blessing. Um, we too, if, if we approach 
God with a sense of entitlement. If we just demand things off him, thinking that it's our right to get whatever we want, whatever we ask for, then we too will also miss out on a blessing, the blessing of knowing him and the blessing of having our own prayers answered. In Proverbs 16, verse 5, it says, Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. But the opposite of that is also true. Um, the, Lord, the Lord loves the humble of hearts. And it says in James chapter 4, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The secret to God's heart is humility. Approaching him with a humble and broken heart um, that considers itself to be the least and the most undeserving of his grace. And that is the secret um, to God's heart. Um, can we continue with reading verses 5 to 7, please? Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Continue. Verse 7. Yeah. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. All right, so what did Jacob see in his sons that made him reject their counsel and their assembly? Okay, so Jacob basically prophesied about the tribe of Simeon, who will come from the um, from from which the scribes will come, um, and from.
holy deed that we want to put into practice. I just ask you to stand and let's pray together. Um, Just before we start, a note about Jesus. Um, We've all heard the term the line of Judah, right? anyone know where it gets its origins from? Okay, it's from this chapter, the next few verses. Um, So can we read verses 8 to 9, please? Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? All right. So the name Judah literally means praise, okay? Now, from the tribe of Judah came all the kings, like like King David and King Solomon. Um, And from the tribe of Judah also came a lot of leaders that actually led the people of Israel Israel, um, into battle. And most importantly, from the tribe of Judah came the Messiah, okay? And so Jacob prophesied about all of this, and hence why he said, your father's children shall bow down before you. Father Tadros Malari also contemplating this and says, Who is this Judah whom his brothers shall praise but the Lord Christ, who with the cross has put his hand on the neck of the devil, his enemy, and destroyed him to set humanity free from his authority? So seeing the Lord Christ in the seed of Judah, Jacob called him the lion that came out of the war of the cross, victorious of his spiritual enemies. Which reminds me, has anyone watched the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yep, everyone remember that by Swiss Lewis? Does anyone na- uh, remember the name of the lion? Good, <laughs> well done. Um, and does anyone know who the lion represents in the movie? Well done, very good. So it's, it's a great um, allegory with several biblical references, the most important being that the lion died to save that boy's life. Uh, what was his name? Saf, that's right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and defeated death by resurrecting from the dead, all right? And St. Augustine basically um, also comments about these verses, and he says, um, he prophesied about the death of Christ by saying, he lays down like a lion, stressing that his death has been by his own will. He himself proclaimed the authority in the Bible, saying, no one takes it from me, for I lay it down by myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Um, in John chapter 10. So the lion roared and consummated what he said. Moreover, consider his power in the resurrection, as he said, who shall arouse him? He will raise himself up. No one will arouse him. He said about his body, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. Okay, so he he prophesies about um, basically the Messiah coming and he likens him to being the lion of Judah. That's where we get that term from. Um, Can we read verse 10? A scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So what does a scepter represent? What does it it symbolize? What do we... Yeah, so it's basically a sign of royalty, okay? Kingship. Very good. Um, So when Jacob says the scepter shall not depart from Judah, he's basically prophesying that kings shall come from the tribe of Judah, and ultimately the King of Kings, which is the Lord Christ, okay? Um, and so it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, 
Shilohi basically means the Messiah, okay? So meaning all the kings will come from the tribe of Judah until the Messiah comes. And to him, capital H, um, shall be the obedience to all the people. Shall be the obedience of all the people. Um, St. Augustine says, The Jews were so called after Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, from whose seed royalty came, and from that tribe kings came, and from it our Lord Jesus Christ came. Um, the next prophecy is actually one of my favorites, really powerful. Um, can anyone read verse 11, please? Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he washed his garments in the wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Does anyone have any idea what this is talking about? All right, so it's actually very powerful imagery, again, relating to the Messiah, all right? In John chapter 15, um, Christ says about himself, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So essentially, Jacob prophesied about the Messiah being the true vine, all right? So that's the first part. So Ambrose continues and contemplates on the binding of the donkey and says, this explains the mystery that the Lord ordered a donkey's colt to be loosed and himself sat upon it. So, when does the Lord sit on a donkey's colt? When in, sorry? Palm Sunday, well done, okay? So this is basically a prophecy relating to Palm Sunday, okay? That Christ, the Messiah, who is the true vine, will enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That is, the vine is riding on the colt, which is basically what we just read, right? The prophecy continues. And he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes, okay? What is the blood of grapes referring to? What do we think? Okay, so Syrian, uh, um, Cyprian says, what is the blood of grapes but the wine of the blood of the Lord? Okay, that's refer referring to the shedding of Christ's blood and his crucifixion. What about the garments? Okay, so he talks about um, washing his garments in the wine. So St. Augustine says, what is this garment that he washes in wine, namely in his blood? It is the church from sin. So he's washing with his blood the church from its sin. Um, isn't this incredible? Like, what a great prophecy. Like, I had no idea that, like, this whole Palm Sunday thing was even, like, prophesied about, like, thousands of years in advance. Um, and they're very specific prophecies. Anyways, moving on. Uh, verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, so the fathers say that the eyes refer to the prophets who basically saw the coming of the Messiah and perceived his suffering, as we read in the, in the previous verses, but rejoiced because it announced salvation. Uh, meanwhile, the part that says his teeth are whiter than milk refers to the apostles who were sanctified by the Lord himself and became white or pure. It can also be interpreted as the apostles provided for us spiritual nourishment by declaring to us the pure milk of the word. Um, let's move on to the next one. Uh, verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Okay, so in the book of Joshua, um, we read the boundaries of Zebulun. Um, they're outlined and faithfully situated um, by the sea. St. Hippolytus says, So Zebulun, he has foretold that pagan nations, sorry, through Zebulun, he has foretold that pagan nations which lie along the coast and are tormented by storms and temptations 
look for refuge in harbours which are deserted. So basically what he's saying is that the tribe of Zebulun, so one of his sons, represents the pagans who do not believe in the Lord, okay? And the sea represents the temptations of the world. Those who are living in sin and those who are living by the sea. But they take refuge from the storms of the sea um, in the harbours of the church. Uh, moving on to verses 14 to 15, please. Isaacar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Okay, so Issachar is the next son that we're talking about, and he basically represents Christ again. The name Issachar means reward. So basically, Christ is our reward, and we received Christ as a reward for our faith. St. Hippolytus says, He found his rest in the inheritance of the prophets. On the mountain, Moses and Elijah uh, were seen as they talked to him whilst they were standing, one on his right and the other on his left, in order to demonstrate that the Lord rested between them. So what he's basically saying is that this is a prophecy about the transfiguration, okay? Um, and what happened in the transfiguration? You have um, Issachar, which represents Christ. So Christ is there, and he's standing between two burdens who are actually, I don't know why they call them burdens, I won't lie, um, which are basically Moses and Elijah on both sides. Um, and that's basically what happened in the transfiguration. So Ambrose continues, and he says, he bound his soldier to labor. He bowed himself to the cross to carry the burden of our sins. And so when we read, uh, sorry, and so when we refer to Essekai as, as a donkey, we are basically saying that he's carrying a heavy burden. And what is this burden? It is the burden of our sins. Okay. Um, moving on to verses 16 to 18, please. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the way, by the path, that bites the horse's heels, so that its riders shall fall, back, fall backwards. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. All right. So the name Dan actually means judge. So um, basically what was happening was Rachel was competing with Leah, her sister. No, it's not her sister, her the other wife. Um, and so she gave her concubine to Jacob, who begot a son. And she named him Dan, which means um, God has judged my case and, give, and gave me a son. So Ambrose believes that this prophecy refers actually to the Antichrist. Um, a cruel judge who will come from the tribe of Dan um, because it says Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels that its rider shall fall backwards. Um, verses 19, please. Gad a, troop shall, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Um, so basically, Sir Ambrose says about this verse, and he, um, he refers to the cunning assembly of scribes and Pharisees who tested the Lord Christ about Caesar's taxes and about John the Baptist. However, the Lord turned this trial back at them uh, by replying without any deliberation so that he can corner those who are basically trying to make him stumble. Um, so basically, so Ambrose is talking about um, that Gad represents the Lord who, who was under trial and they tried to make the Lord stumble, but instead the Lord triumphed. Um, even though he was crucified, death again did not defeat him. He conquered death and he arose victoriously. Uh, verse 20. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Does anyone know what dainties are? Your definition? Anyone? No? Um, so dainties means something that's good to eat, like a delicacy. Okay? So say, um, Hippolytus says that Asher, again, he represents the Lord, um, since he spoke about bread descending from heaven, which is the food and drink for the saints. In fact, 
um, Asher is interpreted as richness, okay? As he alone was able to, to feed and satisfy anyone who came to him. Likewise, we can also say the same about our Lord, um, who, who is the bread of life, which came down from heaven. Um, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and died, but whoever eats of my bread will never see eternal death. Um, so this was basically a summary that the Lord Christ is the bread of life who nourishes us all spiritually and in abundance. Um, can we then read verses 21 to 24, please? the mighty God of Jacob. All right, so Joseph was Rachel's first son, um, and he was praised more than all of his other brothers. In fact, Jacob called him a fruitful bow. Does anyone know what a bow is? Okay, so it's basically the main branch of a tree, okay? And why is he praised by Jacob so much more than his brothers and called a fruitful bow? Okay, and, and the fathers basically said, it's because he was faithful to the Lord, regardless of his circumstances. Whether he was a brother, a slave, a prisoner, or a leader second to Pharaoh, Joseph was basically faithful to the Lord. He was that big branch that produced heavenly fruit that was not hindered by the wall of events or his surrounding circumstances. That is what is meant um, when Jacob said, a fruitful bow by a well, his branches run over the wall. So regardless of his circumstances, Joseph remained faithful to the Lord. When things were rough and he was sold and imprisoned and treated unjustly, he remained faithful to the Lord. When he was elevated and made a leader second to Pharaoh, he remained faithful to the Lord. What about us? Okay. When things are tough, do we just say, Sabes, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. If God was real, if he really cared, I wouldn't be in this situation anyways. Or maybe we're thinking, everyone's doing it. The world has changed. I don't want to be the only loser that sleep with a guy before marriage. Or maybe we're at the opposite extreme, when things are going well for us, and we're like, who cares about God? I earned my way up the corporate ladder. I worked hard to get this promotion. I don't need God in my life. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to enjoy living my life the way I want to. But it says of Joseph, he remained faithful to the Lord regardless of his circumstances. He loved everyone regardless of how they treated him. He remained pure even when no one was watching. And you may ask, how did he do that? What was Joseph's secret? Father Tadros Malati says, he was a fruitful bow that was always connected to the origin. According to the words of the Lord, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, he cannot do anything. John chapter 15 verse 5. So his secret was the fact that he was always connected to the true vine. He clung to him wherever he went. He was constantly moving from one place to another, slave here, sold here, offshore here, constantly moving. But he clung to the Lord wherever he was. Whatever situation he was, he was attached to the Lord. So when the temptation is hitting strong, he was able to fight back and say, 
how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? In Genesis chapter 39. And so you may ask, what was the reward of his faithfulness? And you'll see that for yourselves when you read verses 25 to 26. By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So was Joseph's faithfulness rewarded? Most definitely, he was blessed beyond measure. Like, I don't know if you can ever find a blessing that's greater than this. Uh, moving on to the last son, Benjamin, uh, verse 27. At night, he shall divide the spoil. All right, so the tribe of Benjamin was basically known to be very ferocious, and they fought um, with many of the other tribes, okay? So Ephraim the Syrian um, basically directed this um, towards St. Paul the Apostle um, as he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, Paul was a ravenous wolf. He snatched many souls away from the evil one. In the evening, he will divide what he seizes. That is, at the end of the world, he will obtain the reward of his labors. So St. Ephraim is basically likening St. Paul to a ravenous wolf who was stealing souls from Satan as he preached to them the word of God and brought to them salvation. He was very zealous for the salvation of souls. Um, so I, I serve in pre-servants normally. Um, and last, just yesterday we actually were having a servants meeting after class and Uncle Magdi Kaleta decided to join our servants meeting and he really gave it to us. Like literally, Masah had been allowed. This man is incredible. Like, he is incredibly zealous. God bless him. But, like, he gave us kalem Like, he, he told us, you are responsible for the salvation of each of the souls that you are serving. You are not going to have to answer to your class leader. You're not going to have to answer to me, Uncle Magdi, but to the Lord himself. It is not enough that they attend class or that they have fun outings. You need to pray for them. You need to be serious in your prayer for them, serious in serving them. You are responsible for each of those souls before the Lord. I think we all left basically crying. Um, but this man is incredibly zealous, and same with St. Paul. So I pray that we all may obtain that same zeal um, that, we, that we can see in the life of St. Paul and I'll come back to Clara. Um, verse 28 to 33, please. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and cave, the field and cave that is there 
were purchased from the sons of Heth. And then Jacob had finished commanding his sons. He drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So basically he was asking his sons to bury him in the cave that he had brought in the field of Ephraim, um, where all his ancestors were buried. So Abraham and Sarah, Leah and Rachel, they were all buried in the same place. All right, let's move on to the, the last chapter, um, Genesis chapter 50. And can I ask the next person to please read verses 1 to 6, please. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. The physician embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such other days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. All right. So now remember... Um, Jacob lived um, all his life like his father's unsettled intents, and he died as a stranger in the land of Egypt. But he was very um, specific. Um, he commanded his sons to bury him in the land of Canaan, in the cave where Abraham and Isaac were buried. You may ask, um, why did he care so much about where he was going to be buried? Like, what's the big deal? Like, he's dead anyways. Um, Father Tadros Maladi um, mentions two main reasons. One, um, in the Old Testament, people used to want to have their bodies buried in particular locations as a tradition um, through which their children would apprehend the resurrection of the body. They lived as strangers in the world, depriving their bodies of comfort in anticipation of, ca in anticipation of carrying it glorified on the day of resurrection. And the, the, second, the second reason um, that Buna gave was basically that Jacob wanted to confirm to his children that although they lived um, in Egypt, his heart was still in Canaan and the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. Um, it's as though Jacob is asking his children to keep hold of God's promises. Um, another thing that I found quite interesting um, is that 17, 70 days is quite a long time to mourn, right? Um, how many days do we tend to mourn for? 40 days, yeah, like we do the 40-day the thing. Um, so 70 days actually wasn't the standard. Um, the Egyptians only mourned for 70 days if it was a king or someone who was like very honorable. Um, for everyone else, they, may, they mourned 40 days, which is basically how long it used to take for the whole mummification or embalming process. Um, so the fact that they mourned for Jacob for 70 days means that they held him in very high esteem and um, honoured him greatly. Uh, verses 7 to 14, please, the next person. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds they left in the house land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Oh. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father.
And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning of, at the threshing floor of the Tad, they said, This is a deep morning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as, they command, just as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, which Abraham bought from, with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. So basically there was a great procession from the land of Goshen to Canaan um, to bury Jacob. And Jacob said, I will go up and bury my father. Okay, As he perceived it to be a procession of ascending and not descending, carrying a symbol of the ascension of the church towards the true promised land, the new Canaan, to live eternally with her groom. Um, in verses 7 to 9, we continue to read about this very great gathering um, which Joseph was leading. Uh, the fathers likened this to a procession, um, to a spiritual war against sin, um, which all the men of the faith, so the Jews, the Gentiles, the elders, the servants, um, need to fight on their journey towards heaven. This demonstrates that our journey requires persistent spiritual strife and battle against sin. And just as Joseph led his people towards Canaan, um, Jesus is the head of our church who leads us to victory to the new Jerusalem. Um, also, if you notice, um, as they reach the land of Canaan, there is no mention of tears or crying, even though they're supposed to be mourning um, for Jacob, um, which is a reminder for us that as we enter the heavenly Canaan, there is no more pain or suffering. In the book of Revelation, it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Um, that's Revelation chapter 21. Uh, if we can continue reading verses 15 to 21, please. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us, and many will repay us for all the evil we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt and he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Okay, um, so I really admire Joseph's heart, which is full of love and forgiveness. When his brothers fell before him in shame, asking and begging for forgiveness, he weeps and reassures them and says, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? I forgive you. It's not my place to punish you. 
It's not my place to seek vengeance. My job is simply to forgive. Whenever I think of forgiveness, I often think of that really beautiful picture of Christ when it says, when I forgive, I forget. Um, C.S. Lewis once said, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And the truth is, it's hard. You want to forgive, but you're just too hurt. Um, you want to move on, but you just can't seem to forget about what that person just did. No matter how hard you try to forget, you can't seem to erase it from your memory. And you question yourself and you ask, have I really forgiven that person? The fact that I still remember what they've done to me, the fact that I'm still hurting, does that mean I haven't forgiven them properly? But nowhere in the Bible does it say that the standard for forgiveness is forgetting what that person has done or said. Some things are just too difficult to, to forget. Um, think of that Maronite Catholic woman, Leila Abdullah, who lost her three children, or lost three of her children, Anthony, Angelina, and Sienna, um, to that drunk driver eight years ago. Um, that couple was interviewed at St. Mary's Church about a year after it happened. And I clearly remember um, that the husband mentioned that he wakes up every morning, sits at, the sits at the edge of his bed, and just cries and cries and cries for the children that he lost. He's hurting. Those parents will probably never forget those kids. They'll never forget what happened. But they made a choice to forgive that driver. So then what is the standard of forgiveness that is required of us? On the cross, the Lord says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so for us, we don't need to wait for an apology. We don't need to wait for that long, sincere, heartfelt apology. We don't need to wait for that sorry. I make a decision to forgive regardless. And the second thing is that we can try to make excuses and give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, the other thing that the Bible tells us about forgiveness is um, if we referred to that parable about the unforgiving servant. Um, the Lord says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Uh, one of the youth once asked Bunya Orb and said, What does it mean to forgive from the heart? Um, and the way that Abuna responded was, That you wish good upon them. You're happy when they get promoted. You're happy when things go well for them. You want things to go well for them. Um, and those are just a few principles about forgiveness that we can hopefully try to um, live. Uh, moving on to verse 20. Um, it's a very famous and very beautiful verse. Um, when it says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Okay? This is what our God is capable of turning evil meant against me to greater good, turning darkness into light, turning pain into a source of joy, and turning a seemingly helpless situation into a source of hope for others. And there are many examples of this. Um, just think of the Libya martyrs. 21 innocent young men were kidnapped, severely and unjustly tortured, and then slaughtered. ISIS recorded their slaughter and made it go viral in an attempt to scare us. Okay? But we're so grateful that, that they've captured it for us. 
because it brought so many people to the faith, and we're so proud of those young men. Um, again, looking, um, referring back to the Abdullah family, um, they turned the anniversary of their children's tragic death into I Forgive Day. And thousands of people were very touched by that move. Um, Layla said, we chose to turn our tragedy into greater goodness. We chose to carry our cross with dignity. We chose forgiveness and love over hatred. Only God can help them turn this tragedy into something so beautiful and inspiring for the whole world. Um, and the same applies to us. Are there things in your life that are not going to plan? Are there qualities or weaknesses in your soul that you're ashamed of? Is there something that you've been praying for so desperately for so long and you just really badly want it, but it seems like God just isn't giving it to you? Well, that's okay. We're all in the same boat. Just step back and give God some, some room to work in your life. Just kneel before him and ask him to turn the evil meant against you to greater good. Your darkness into light. Your pain into a source of joy. And your seemingly hopeless situation into a source of hope for others. This is what our God is capable of. Um, moving on to verse 21. Um, it says, Now therefore, or Joseph said, Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Reminds me of the Sermon of the Mount, like when, when the Lord says, Love your enemies, go the second mile. So Joseph's brothers basically bashed him and sold him, and Joseph continues to love them and provide for them. Okay? And such love and forgiveness is so powerful. Like, never underestimate the power of such love. Um, back before um, Father Anthony was a priest and before we got married, um, he went to Malaysia and he was wearing a cross. And one day he was approached by a Muslim guy in Malaysia um, who asked if he was Christian. And Johnny at the time said, yeah. And then the Muslim guy is like, good, I want to be baptized. And then Johnny's like, why do you want to be baptized? And the Muslim guy is just like, I saw an interview on YouTube of the family members of people who were killed in Egypt. They asked a mother who had lost her son, do you have a message you want to deliver to those who killed your son? The woman responded, we pray for you and we, for and we forgive you. And it was that very love and forgiveness that made this man want to become a Christian, that is that, that love and that forgiveness that drew him to Christ. Um, I was actually just, just before I came here, watched one of those, um, like a video clip of like um, the wife of one of the Livia Martis, and man, she puts us to shame. Like, she's so proud of her husband. And like, she's like, yes, it's hard, but I'm, I'm not upset. I'm hurt, but like, I'm so happy. Like, this is the best thing that could have happened to me. Like, means the best thing that could happen. You're living, she's, mind you, she's carrying a 12-month-old in her arm, and she's like, this is the best thing that could have happened to him. I'm so proud of him. I'm so thankful to God that my husband's a Marty. And it's truly inspirational. Thank you, Marion, for posting that. <laughs> um, so reading verses 22 to 26. Mm -hmm. 
So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Rachel, the son of Manasseh, who also brought up to Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you, will, and you shall carry out my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So remember, Joseph was the one who brought his family to Egypt during the famine, and he's the one that provided for them. But now that he is dying, he reminds his family, God would surely visit you, a.k.a. he will look after you and provide for you and bring you out of this land to the promised land which he is, which is swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is entrusting his family to the Lord. And that's relevant to us as well. Do you have kids that you're worried about or youth that you're serving that are struggling with addictions who have left the church? Take them to the Lord. Leave your concerns on the altar. Entrust them to the most loving and caring Father. They're His children, not yours. They're His problem, not yours. Leave it to Him to deal with. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Do you have any questions? This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart and we pray that it will not only inform you but will also transform you and your life with Christ.